Welcome to the Open Assembly Podcast. I'm your host, John Windsor, and in this episode, I'd like to introduce you to James Cole, founder of a really unique platform called the H-Hub. The H-Hub platform is a tool that allows companies of all sizes as well as individuals to hire the best photographers in seconds. They have worked with some of the top brands such as Allbirds, Kashi, Brooks Brothers, Vistapoint, and more. I connected with James a few months ago through our Open Assembly weekly calls and have had the pleasure to learn more about him and the H-Hub. As a former ad executive, I know how expenditures can get out of hand and the H-Hub is a great tool to get a better product that is on time and on budget. James is a sharp guy and I always love talking with him. I hope you enjoy this chat with James Cole, CEO and founder of the H-Hub. All right, James, how's it going? Very well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So tell us a little bit about you. Well, I founded The Hub four and a half years ago, and that's been most of my time. was in marketing before that at a big ad agency in New York called YNR. And I love nature. I'm big on mental health. And I love community, which is why The Hub does what it does. That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, I know you were with some other platforms. You kind of told me some other stuff, but I'd love to hear your journey to get to The Hub. I'd say there are really two pieces. One is I worked, as I said, at YNR, a big ad agency, and was kind of shocked when my Fortune 500 clients were paying us, you know, 20, 30, 40K a month for social content. And this was now six or seven years ago. But the way that we were creating said social content for their always on calendar, for their social platforms and so on, the way we were creating it was like some 22 year old with, a, with an iPhone kind of snapping photos in between meetings for 40K a year. And I I just remember thinking then there's got to be a better way. So that's piece one. And then piece two is I was recruited to a company out in San Francisco and moved my life across the country and ran content for a big app that had 40 million users and no brand voice. So they wanted me to kind of build the brand from the ground up. And the company had raised a ton of money and a lot of it was debt. And the debt got pulled about a month into my being there, a bunch of it, over a million bucks. And so a lot of my budgets got slashed. A lot of people were fired. And I had to make do with very little by way of budget, but still make waves in terms of creating a lot of content. And so this is when Instagram was just growing from being a very small private community of your friends and family to something where you'd have a public account and be followed by tens of thousands of people. And so I sort of rode that wave and made friends with 30, 40, 50 photographers that were really talented and to my surprise would work for very cheap. And so for this company, we hearted, I was able to create, you know, 30, 40, 50 shoots a month for 10 grand or 20 grand, which blew everyone's mind and most of all mine. And so I basically took those two pieces. Like there are a lot of brands out there that are paying a lot of money for content and getting some 22 year old to take it with an iPhone. And they're all these talented photographers all over the country that would jump through hoops for a $300 shoot. And so how can we bring these together? And my company is a bit confusing. It's called the H hub. And everyone's always stuttering over that. The first H stands for that connection, you know, the supply side of all of these incredibly talented creators that work at Starbucks to make ends meet. And then the brands that need content, but don't know where to find it. And we're the kind of cross beam in the middle. Yeah, great. That's really great. Well, speaking of the platform, tell us about the platform. How did it start? Where is it now? How did it morph? 
Yeah. What I like most about the platform is that we started with what I knew, which was community. That's what's in my heart. And as an agency, which is how I was professionally trained. So we started as just like a ragtag group of 30, 40, 50, 60 photographers and slowly grew like that. And it was very community oriented, lots of events and trips and so on. And then started taking on clients and manually connecting Kashi to six photographers that would shoot a campaign, say. It was very manual. And then one of the photographers was always rising to the top and always over-delivering. And I sort of poached her to run my agency. Her name is Shannon. And Shannon is just such a natural, such a great story. She dropped out of college after one semester. She was working on a sales floor at Nordstrom Rack and as a wedding photographer on weekends. And that's when I snagged her. And she just has an amazing touch and feel for this stuff. So you asked about the platform, and I basically built the platform around Shannon's ethos and soul, the way that she was bringing photographers together, the way that she was evaluating the quality of photographers, how trustworthy they were. We have a lot of proprietary mechanisms that rank and categorize our creators using how Shannon does it as a human. That's one of the things that makes us special is like, though we've been turned to machine, we still have a very human heart and soul. Yeah, I think that's important, right? Like that match. The more machine learning we have embedded, the more human touch we need as well. So that's really cool. Yeah. So what categories do you guys work in? You know, John, I met with an investor, one of the first investors in eBay. And he told me a story about eBay and how they, I don't know if you knew this, but until they'd raised over 10 million bucks, they were exclusively a fishing tackle company. Really? Yeah. If you wanted really, If you wanted really exotic fishing lures, He went to ebay.com and that's what it was. And he said, that's how they did it. Listen, they got a foothold in that space. They got a flywheel, pardon the pun. And once they raised money and had good momentum, they spread out slowly by vertical. And now, of course, do everything, you know, Amazon did that with books. So I unfortunately did not start that way. And we went pretty wide, but we very arbitrarily about a year ago picked food and beverage and have Mm -hmm. gone very deep on that. And COVID is actually, you know, And I say this with great respect for many people who can't say this, but it's broken our way insofar as all of our existing clients are doing fine or in many cases better. And a lot of people are seeking us out because, hey, my agency can't keep up with my demand right now. Can you guys pick up the slack? Mm -hmm. So we're getting a lot of nods from huge companies that would have overlooked us a year ago that are giving us shots right now, which is pretty cool. That's super cool. Well, tell us one good case study from the platform, a customer success story. The one that comes to mind off the top of my head is Purpose.com, a lesser known entity compared to some of our bigger clients, but I just, it's one of my favorite case studies. They came to us, you know, it is what it sounds like. It's a nonprofit that does a lot of good for a lot of different causes, a lot of different purposes. Global warming was one they were particularly focused on in the past year or two. And basically, they had a vendor fall through two weeks before a huge initiative where they were driving an electric car from a big symposium in New York to a big symposium in San Francisco and stopping at lots of places along the way. So not only did we help them make content at every stop along the way, but we mobilized creators in every state, all 50 states, in less than two weeks. So we ended up getting 70 creators to each shoot a environmental location of significance. So some of them shot you know, a famous rock in Yosemite, say, that has national significance. And some of them shot the pond where they learned to fish with their grandfather. 
and the images are all stunning. Everyone posted about it generating five or six million impressions. And it's an example of what I think our community is at its best, which is sort of a chorus. You know, each each creator singing their own version of the song, say, but coming together as one, as this sort of massive entity. So I like stories like that. We've also done a lot of work sort of using my brand strategy background. So some of Brooks Brothers Holdings, we've done a lot of work with Brooks Brothers and they've let us sort of take lead on rebranding some of their smaller holdings. And we've done a lot of work, you know, I would have said this if you'd asked me three or four months ago, but I guess it's particularly topical today, John. We felt very strongly from the beginning of the company that standing up for those without a voice was really important. And for me, that really meant the small creator like Shannon that I told you about before, who was working at a Nordstrom rack and is super talented, but just can't find the big Fortune 500 deals. But that can also mean, you know, Shannon's very passionate about gender equality in our field and getting female creators the the credit and the opportunities they deserve. We've been very focused on racial equality, et cetera, et cetera. And so Shannon really led this incredible campaign for one of Brooks Brothers companies that I I won't mention just for privacy, but we basically rebranded it, gutted the brand. They had just acquired it. And every single shoot was done by a female person of color. And this was a year and a half ago or two years ago now. But we did 40 or 50 shoots all over the country. And again, this sort of chorus concept. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, this is going to be a little bit repetitive, but just want to make sure we get it in the catalog. But with the disruption of the current crisis, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I I feel a little weird saying this to you, John, because I feel like you wrote the book on this or, or writing the book on this. But I will echo what many smarter than I have said, which is that COVID and a lot of the disruption happening in the world right now is just accelerating change that was already in motion. I think some things are happening that wouldn't have for obvious reasons, but many things that are happening are just happening five or 10 years ahead of schedule. I believe that decentralization is the future of almost every industry. It's what happened in transportation with Uber or accommodation with Airbnb. And to me, it's absolutely insane that a boardroom of bespectacled 57-year-old dudes, with all due respect to you, John, on Madison Avenue are like controlling the campaigns for handbag companies for 22-year-old women or, you know, sports cars for 60-year-old men, you know, in the same day. That just blows my mind. And I have 40,000 people who know what they know and shoot what they shoot and care about what they care about. And they should each respectively be telling those stories authentically on behalf of those companies. Yeah, it is kind of mind-blowing, right? The way that the current agency structure sets up doesn't lend itself to authentic creators. So for sure. Not at all. I have a great story about that, but I'll let you get through your list. No, no, go for it. Go for it, man. Tell me the story. All right. Well, this is a story that's not becoming of me to just scream out loud on a podcast, but it will make this a little juicier and more memorable for whoever's watching. So I worked at YNR, worked on many clients. Campbell's was not one of them, but Campbell's is, I think, YNR's oldest client. They've been with YNR for almost a hundred years, 94, I think. And so... I know all the players at YNR that work with Campbell's and all the senior people at YNR. Bit of a long story, but I try to work with YNR, try to help them be better at what I see as a huge failing of theirs, which is being fast, reactive, nimble, and so on. And they passed me around internally. They had a lot of politics going on, John, because they got gobbled up by a small digital agency called VML out of Kansas City. So YNR is now VML YNR. But they basically wouldn't move forward. 
So I finally emailed them and said, you know, I'll work for free. How about I do five grand of free work for Pepperidge Farm, who's owned by Campbell's? No response. How about 10? No response. How about 20? No response. How about 50? And at the time I had 300K in the bank. So 50K was a lot. And also, John, about a year's worth of content for Pepperidge Farm. And finally, they said, we'll think about it and so on. So I said, screw you. I'm going to make it anyway. So I make it. I spend about seven grand hard costs on the content. It's amazing. We make it for Goldfish, Milano, and Kettle Chips, which are all holdings of Pepperidge. I email it to all the top brass at Campbell's and all the top brass at YNR. And I say, VML YNR is failing you. And I said, here are your images. Let me know when you're ready, James. No response. And then six months later, Shannon direct messaged Milano on Instagram and said, hey, we took some photos for you. I hope you like them. Next thing I know, I'm on the phone with six people at Campbell's, the woman who runs content for them and five people that run their biggest brands. And we're talking about how they need content and their agency isn't moving fast enough and no one had passed them along the content. And I hope that when this podcast is published, they are our new shining biggest client. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's just a good example of, you know, a huge client that's been with with YNR for 94 years and they're just not getting what they need anymore. The agency model is so very broken. Well, and I think that's the reality of most incumbent businesses, right? It's like, it's to maximize your current model and make sure that nothing disrupts that current model. Right. Um, unfortunately, I think it's changed the attitude of a lot of folks. We'll yeah. See. Well, that's an awesome story about Campbell's. Tell me about who your core customers are. I would say our core customers are businesses you've never heard of, but would probably like to because they're kind of cool up and coming food brands. So we have hundreds and hundreds of brands that are using the platform. And, and so what they'll do, John, is they come on and they post a job. They say, I need photos of my pretzel chips against a red backdrop, or I need pictures of my dates with a blonde model on a mountaintop. And they're all sort of small two to 10 person companies. And by my estimate, there are over a hundred thousand within the food and beverage space alone in the United States. Wow! So we're hoping to capture a lot of that market share and, and the long tail say, I think the, the fat head, meaning the big fortune 500s mm-hmm. will come. And some of them have already, we worked extensively with Kashi. We're working with Del Monte, Campbell's I mentioned, et cetera. And those are the clients that are paying us the most by far, those big names, but the hundreds and hundreds of shoots with smaller clients that are paying $700 here, $700 there, make up the volume of our business. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I think that's just the natural way things grow, right? It's almost like, it's nice to get to the juicy part of the steak, right? The big kind of Fortune 500 companies, but they're really influenced not just by what you say, but by what their smaller competitors are doing, right? So Indeed. I have heart for the smaller competitors because more phone calls than not for me in a day are with founders, you know, I'm not talking to some junior person at Campbell's who doesn't really care about what the hell I'm offering. I'm really changing and informing someone's business. It feels more meaningful and exciting to me. Yeah, I love that, man. That's great. What's your biggest challenge? I think like any would-be disruptor, it's just convincing people that this is indeed the future and, and like convincing them to take the leap. Like my biggest challenge would be convincing a agency who's really scared of me eating their lunch, a la YNR, or a massive food conglomerate like Campbell's and convincing them to change, you know, their ways. Mm-hmm. That's my biggest challenge. And then even with the little guys, it's just like convincing them to take the leap to spend that 700 bucks because that's meaningful to them. So 
trust and establishing that my way, though new, is actually significantly better. I think it's a battle for everybody in this new paradigm, right? The old way of working is so ingrained. And even though the margin of savings is so massive, eight to 10 times savings, it's hard to find those folks that are early adopters inside big companies. They're not in those big companies because they are early adopters. Yeah, an interesting story, John, real quick. I was trying to raise a big round of capital about a year ago, and I went and met with a bunch of invest, you know, bigwig investors. And I was pulling in, you know, well over 1.5 million run rate just as an agency doing manual work for people. Mm-hmm. And the platform was just getting started. And most of the investors said to me, kill your agency. It's a services business. It's not scalable. It's a cute little $5, $10 million business at most. And I'm not interested. If you're going to swing, really swing for it. So let's see what this platform can do and come back to us when you've really scaled the platform. So I got a lot of feedback and pressure to grow the platform, grow the platform. So I did at all costs and me being a bit bullheaded as I've been on this podcast with you. I said to them, you know, five to 7% week over week growth is considered viral growth for, for platforms. Yeah. I'm going to come back to you with sustained 10% week over week growth over four months. And I just sort of paused and got the acknowledgement I was looking for, which is like, okay, yeah, like we'll invest when you can pull that miracle off. And I did. And I sort of sold my soul to do it, which is to say, terrible unit economics. I threw the kitchen sink at it and I grew at all costs and I hockey sticked my growth, but I was spending, you know, three, four, five bucks to make one mm-hmm. and doing what a lot of VC funded companies do. Yeah. And I got a lot of no's on the other side of that, not for that reason, but just for arbitrary reasons. And it was then and there, John, that I decided that I was going to bootstrap this and grow it slowly with the long tail. And that's what we've done. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And I think, you know, at least from my analysis, looking at where the marketplace is, even the peer platforms, just everyone that I know is starting to have some kind of business transformation consulting services practice that sits on top of their platform to help the adoption, right? And, of course. And so, and so I think, you know, to me, it's the hybrid model that wins. You know, the, yes. the tech-enabled services that wins. So it might so. not be the, you know, the huge valuation, but I, my sense is those days are gone. Right. Like and that's shooting the eye of the needle. The more sustainable, successful path is to actually be focused on integrating your technology inside a client, but with great services and great ability yeah, to understand. I couldn't agree more. I'll say it a little differently, which is I think my services layer is the Trojan horse for my software. Right. Mm-hmm. The software is a little scary and foreign and it's not palatable to a Campbell's. That's fine. Let me just shape myself into an agency sized Trojan horse and put my platform inside. And they've dealt with agencies 17 ways to Sunday and are very happy to take that horse into, into Troy, you know? And then yeah. I'm able to say, cool, actually we're this massive, powerful platform and that's now gonna power all of your content. And that's worked for us. It's actually sort of a downsell, I call it, because the agency services are often more on a cost basis, yeah. but it's so much more intense from a human capital basis. So if I'm yeah, able to get sure. in the door as an agency and then spring out as a, hey, this is a platform that's going to do the rest of the work. Yeah. Then I can pull out my people and go into the next town. Yeah. It was sort of like, you know, you walking into an agency or especially a brand speaking Russian, you know, in New York, you're not going to get very far, right? But but if you speak English and you can translate it into Russian and get stuff done, it's just it's that translation layer. And it's just to me, it's just where we are in the cycle, right? 10 years from now, it won't even be a question. They'll be doing things 
with tech-enabled solutions for everything. But right totally. now, we're still in that transition zone. So tell us about your, your roadmap. You started talking about it a little bit, but what's on your platform's roadmap? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like the product is in a pretty good place right now. We really focused on product market fit and tightening and tightening and tightening. So I'm pretty happy with it and want to scale it, you know, 5, 10x the revenue numbers of where it is now in the next year or two. I think a lot of the roadmap will be creator focused, actually, which is to say, what more can we do for the Shannons of this world? So things like portable benefits. So like Mm. if you're a freelancer, you know, we have people on our platform. It's a young platform, but they've made 50K in the past year. So they can literally make a living. And we get emails like this, which are very moving. Like I, I was struggling to get by and I made 50K on your platform last year which is awesome, but they still don't have health insurance. So how can I get them health insurance? Or, you know, every year, John, I send out whatever it is, 672 1099s to all the creators that we brought work to over 600 bucks. And I, without fail, get 14 emails back, like what's a 1099? Or like, what is this? Or like, holy shit, I just had to pay 12 grand in taxes. I'm underwater now. And it's not really my job to bail those people out. But on the other hand, I care about those people and they're in my community and I've met a lot of them. And so how can I help the future of work go down a little easier on the creator side and not just the brand side? Yeah. To me, it's like, there's one side of the equation that needs to have friction removed from the buying process. Another side of the platform, the creators, they need not friction removed, but almost more like education on how to run a business. Yeah, how to run a business as it's always been, but how to run a business a la future of work, right? Yeah. Uh, in this new yeah. crazy world that we live in. So totally. And by the way, John, there's a lot of stuff over there, like community and a sense of belonging in this yeah. like digital, like something that really punched me in the face in the early days of this. I just did it because it's all I knew and it's what I wanted to do. But, and this isn't really an original thought, so forgive me, but these kids who are accused of being millennials, Gen Z, addicted to their phones, blah, blah, blah. You know, I know more people with a million followers on Instagram than, than, you know, you could possibly imagine. And yet those people are often so very lonely. Yeah, so I totally the agree. physical community and the, like the sort of analog to, mm-hmm. to combat the digital poison that they're all mainlining is really important. Um, and really so that's like my very, very, very first deck that I made five years ago when I was sort of dreaming up this company had physical spaces as part of this like little, I imagine them as safe houses where mm-hmm. like you're a photographer, you fly from LA to Portland, Oregon, and you need a place to crash or to charge your camera or to grab a beer or to meet up with other creative people. Yeah. And I don't know if we'll actually do that, but that sentiment of a, a sense of belonging. Yeah, I think important. that's important. Yeah. And I think that there are other platforms trying the same thing too. I think that's an important thing. It's, it's a great insight for sure. So what would you say to a leader struggling with even getting started with adoption of platforms like yours? A couple of things. One, I would say, I think of like starting a platform or really any company, like, you know, those doors, John, in like a restaurant yeah, yeah. that separate the kitchen from the front of house. Right. I think of the founders, like you have to cross those doors like six times a day and like in the back, like some guy like covered in tattoos is swearing and a pork chop just fell on the ground and their grease fires and you know it's chaos. And then in the front of the house, that same pork chop needs to cost 36 bucks and a patron's tapping their foot waiting and so on. And so you have this weird job of like being in the kitchen with all the people that are in the trenches 
and you're dealing with all the fires and then you have to walk out with a smile on your face and make that pork chop worth 36 bucks. And so like, you have to learn how to play that line a and B I would argue the kitchen's way more important than the front of house. And if you spend too much time trying to like get your shit eating grin, right. And, you know, make investors happy and whatever, like you're not building it with heart. You're chasing capital and you're chasing praise from people that don't matter as much as the people behind the doors. It's not sustainable either, right? You might get a great investor, but you know, sooner or later that money runs out. And I would argue, John, like if you make those people happy, you're actually worse off than if you disappoint them, which is to say the more you make them happy, the more they give you. And the more they give you, the more you're beholden to them and you're right. in this endless cycle. So the more you can get that kitchen tight and that kitchen pumping up food that you're proud of, you know, ultimately the patrons will come, right? So that's number one. There's one other lesson that I really wanted to impart. And just to go really narrow, I'm sitting here, I've played golf five times in my life, John. And there's this tiny golf course where I am. It's like eight holes and it's a Lynx course, which means like very short holes. I'm awful, awful. And a couple of my friends are pretty good, but you know, and we go out, it's fun. And I always step up to the tee box and slug away with the big driver and the ball shanks off into the woods. And I guess I would say someone with my temperament in particular, you know, running into things, passion, excitement, enthusiasm. When you first start something, particularly a two-sided marketplace, if you whack at it with a driver and you're even one degree off, you're like 67 yards away from the pin, right? And if you think of like being on a putting green and being one degree off, you'll miss the hole, but you miss it by a foot and then the next one goes. So how can you start as small and tight as possible? And it's not sexy or exciting, but if you can really start in the most micro way and make your mistakes on a smaller scale and then scale up what you learn. I spent about two or three years and more money than I'll admit on this podcast, hacking my way through bushes and sand traps, trying to get back to the pin. And we're finally back but I lost a lot of hair, like we were saying before, <laughs> in, the, in the process. So start with your putter and start modest and scale up. That's awesome. I love that. I mean, somebody on a recent call said, you know, before COVID, it was all about the companies that made the most and had the most power were knowing companies. They were kind of the consultancies that knew the most. They were the experts. You paid them a lot to understand kind of what they knew. And COVID's changed everything. And now the most powerful companies are learning companies and learning leaders. The ones that can go into a meeting and say, I don't know, let's go explore that. Or, oh my God, that's really interesting. How do we learn? And I think it's not just an alchemy of just COVID by itself, but it's also the alchemy of the speed of which technology is growing, the unemployment issues that we have. There's so much interesting stuff here that somebody has to figure out and somebody has to be humble enough to say, I don't know, and use their putter instead of their driver, right? Indeed. Yeah, I would just add to that by saying, I've heard once before that every generation's most precious commodity informs the next generation. So your generation's most precious commodity was knowledge. And with the advent of the internet, say that was fixed and knowledge became readily available. And now my generation's greatest problem is attention, which is to say there's too much knowledge and it's too readily available and we're all drowning in it. And so how do you get away from that fire hose and just actually like get enough water out of your ears so you can learn again, as you're saying? Yeah, I love that, man. That's such a beautiful insight on on generational change. And I think that kind of generational change is is what's going to drive companies to migrate towards platforms as well. Let's hope. Yeah. 
Well, thanks for uh, being on the podcast and being a part of it and being a part of the community. Always love your insights and thoughts. And most of all, I just love your passion and your just willingness to throw it down and make it happen. So, you bet, thanks, John. James. Right back at you. Yeah, take all care right. of yourself. All right, take Bye. care.